0: Hey everyone, Lainey here. I'm excited to tell you about a brand new project I've been working on with Spotify. Every Tuesday, starting at 6pm Central Standard Time, I host a live room on Spotify Green Room. It's an app that you download in the Apple App Store or Google Play. Every week, I upload the audio from the discussion to make sure you never miss an episode. The fun part, I've decided to create a giveaway. This episode is brought to you by Posh Peanut. It has quickly become my favorite clothing brand for my little girl, Tilden. And now I have the opportunity to offer every listener that signs up 10% off their first order. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, then enter code Tilly at checkout. That's T-I-L-L-Y. When you place your first order and have your little one in their cute Posh Peanut outfit, be sure to use the hashtag Posh Peanut and tag me, True Crime Fan Club Pod, so I can see how cute your little one looks in their new Posh Peanut. Once again, click the link in my bio and enter code Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-Y, at checkout to get 10% off your first order. Hey everyone, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, the Crimes of Passion podcast, uh, part of the podcast network on Spotify and the It's Haunted What Now podcast, which is a paranormal podcast. I'm also a professional voiceover actress, so you can find out more by going to LaineyHobbsVO.com. So we are going to wait for more people to show up before we get started. I am so excited <clears throat> to be discussing BTK. I am sure a lot of people have a ton of opinions about him, which is why I selected him as a person to discuss for today's crime. Now we are moving back to the 6 p.m. Central slot. Um, As programming kind of just increases and changes, we may have some updates to the schedule. So I know before I was at 7 p.m. Central time, and now I am at 6 p.m. Central time, kind of how I was before. So We'll wait to get some people here saying, Let's go. Let's get started soon. Yeah, I'm I'm very um I've always been intrigued by this case. Hi everyone, welcome. Feel free to give me your gif in the discussion to tell me how excited you are to be here tonight. It is the kickoff to our true crime programming tonight, which is True Crime Tuesdays on Spotify Green Room. So I'm hosting True Crime Convo's. Like I said earlier, I moved to the 6 p.m. Central time slot. So, like I said, as programming changes, we may have some, you know, changes in time, etc. But let's go ahead and get started. As a reminder, I'm Lainey Hobbs, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, The Crimes of Passion podcast, a podcast original on Spotify and the paranormal podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? And Now, a contributor on Spotify for true crime convos. So for tonight, we are going to be discussing Dennis Lynn Raider, aka BTK. So he's BTK stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. Um, I've always been extremely fascinated by this case ever since I was little, I would say little in terms of like in high school, not necessarily like six years old thinking about BTK. Um, but once I learned about him, I was always very curious about how he was able to, you know, stay under the radar. He, he engulfed my mind the same way that the Zodiac killer did. Now this was prior to him being caught and arrested for his crimes. So, at the time when I had first learned about him, his identity was still unknown, and I was so curious how he was able to go, you know, almost two decades without being detected by anybody, really. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited to start a conversation about this. And of course, please feel free to jump on the discussion, raise your hand if you want to have a chat, um, or to offer your opinions, or if any of this is shocking, which it is. A lot of his crimes... Um, you know, are really horrific. So we're going to go ahead and get into it. Now, Dennis Lynn Rader was born on March 9th, 1945, in Columbus, Kansas. Now, it's said that he was born with a frown and a dimple. His parents were high school sweethearts, Dorothea and William, and they would actually go on to have three more sons after Dennis. The family lived with Dorothea's parents until Dennis was about three or four, until the family moved to Wichita which is Wichita, Kansas. And that's what we are going to be um, focused on in terms of the regional aspect of this case. Now, when Dorothea was pregnant with Dennis, she actually fell off a horse. If you recall previous conversations that we've had, I've always mentioned how these kind of head injuries or some type of catastrophic injury happens um, to individuals who are uh, later labeled as serial killers or you know psychopaths, sociopaths, whatever, so we always kind of see this trend popping up. She actually dropped him on his head as well when he was around six or eight months, and the right side of his head was actually hit extremely hard Now, when he was younger, he became really active in his church and he had a great love for God and really enjoyed going to church each Sunday. But his dedication to his religion didn't seem to have much of an effect on his conscience during many of his future endeavors and would surely be frowned upon by his fellow church members if they were ever to find out about them. Now, at around 10 or 11 years old, he first began his nefarious behavior, I'll say, where he would start experiencing behavioral issues, but not within the home at first. So, Around 10 or 11, he starts peeping into the windows of his neighbors, and he also began thinking about bondage when his mother got her hands stuck in the couch. He loved the idea of a woman being stuck and needing help, and he would fantasize about that scenario frequently. Although in his fantasies, he always replaced his mother with another woman. And by 13, he was drawing sexual sketches, and he would eventually work his way up to practicing bondage in his parents' basement. Now, as you know, we don't victim shame and we believe victims, et cetera, but we also don't kink shame. So I can understand how, you know, in the mid 50s or so, how this kind of sexual desire and inquisitiveness, not the peeping, that's a, you know, exploitation there, but the bondage, et cetera, and the fantasy linked to the bondage on its own is not. Bad, right? Like everybody has their own kink, and as long as you're not hurting anybody and you're consensual, then it's fine. Um, So I always wonder with these serial killers who kind of grew up in these ages where, you know, sexual identity and sexual fantasies were repressed, if that would be different or if they would be different people now if they weren't shamed about those later or felt shame about them. So as a, as a teenager, he started reading detective magazines while he was waiting in the barbershop. Uh, the magazine featured an article on the infamous serial killer, we all know him, H.H. H. Holmes. The section detailed the murder hotel Holmes had built for himself in Chicago. And while reading the article, Dennis began fantasizing about a place where he could bind women without anyone noticing. And he would continue to build on this fantasy as time grew or as time went on. Um Hey people, Ethan, thank you. Imagine six-year-old Lainey giving a show and tell. I would, it would be me. Um, so yeah, let me know your thoughts so far and what you're hearing. And if your thoughts about his sexual fantasies, especially being in the fifties are, you know, kind of congruent with mine where he may have not had um, the need to become a sexual deviant in the way that he did, if he had been able to be open about it. So as he's building on this fantasy of finding a place where a woman, you know, can be held without anybody noticing and he can bind them without anybody noticing, he ends up finding a sanctuary for himself and it's in a red barn on a country road along a river just outside of Wichita and the barn would be big enough to build a small train track where he could bind the women. So if you recall kind of those Western movies or the um, the cowboy movies where they um, put somebody on the train tracks, you know, and you kind of have the train coming and they're like screaming, that was a part of his fantasy. Like he wanted to basically get somebody on the track to be able to kind of have them be run over by a train. So the barn also had different levels and a silo. It could even include a vault where he could suffocate some of his victims. He also wanted to include a large acid vat for disposal and a peephole for watching his victims suffer, just as H.H. Holmes had. So, you see, I don't really know, when we were doing this research, I don't really know, like, what instance made him go from, I would say... (laughs) regular bondage to, I want to torture people because that's how I get pleasure. Even just having his mom's hands stuck in the couch. I don't know how that leaped happen. And Dennis himself, he did give a an interview um, and helped write his, I guess, pseudobiography to care, um, Catherine Ramsland, who's a huge um, person in true crime. She's an educator and an author, a researcher, etc. Um, so he actually gave her some information, but I don't recall there being anything specific that led to him kind of going into more like I want to kill people. I want to torture them. I don't want to do things like H.H. Holmes did. Um, he also thought that there could be a swimming pool at the bottom, a laundry room to clean clothes after torture. How genius. A kitchen to sharpen knives, storage area to store tools, a library to store photos of his victims. Living room, a bedroom for binding, a den, a fireplace to keep warm, warm, and lots of wooden beams. It would have to be a very um, secure area, so he would need to have a good security system. And the main area would include a small elevator in the center with a spiral staircase surrounding it. And And remember, as he's thinking about this, he is... A teenager still. So his brain even hasn't even fully developed when he's coming up with these fantasies for him, you know, and how he wants to kind of engage in those fantasies rather. Okay. So going to the chat, Hannah, welcome. She mentions she says, I think it would definitely make a difference if they had outlets to release their sexual desires more openly, but I also think killers would still kill if they had that in them. Killing will never be acceptable, but sexual preferences, desires have largely changed regarding acceptance from what was accepted years ago. Yeah, I I don't think that, you know, I go back to the head injuries, etc. I don't think that he would not kill just because of, you know, again, I talk about that leap, like what went from what happened in his brain to go, this is, you know, a sexual fantasy to now I want to torture and kill people. So we don't know. And I don't think we ever will because Dennis himself continuously, um, you know, creates these grandiose idealized versions of himself and how he was in his childhood, et cetera. So we don't ever really get the true story even from him. So he even thought while he was thinking about this lair, about making it handicap accessible by installing a track that would move from room to room. He wasn't going to bind handicap people. He was going to make people handicap with his bindings. So the top floor would contain a control room, a room where Dennis could come up with new ideas and make big decisions. And he would also install a bomb made of propane tank and gasoline that could be sparked by the alarm system if need be. This sanctuary would be called, not very creatively, the lair. So when he joined the Boy Scouts, he learned how to tie many different styles of knots. And this, of course, only served to strengthen his bondage practices. And I don't know if you guys are like me, but sometimes I I veer off into Google and I'm like, hey, um, I want to see, you know, like they have case files and case file photos. I don't go anything gory or graphic like that. Um, but with BTK, there's a lot of photos from the case file Um, where he was taking pictures of himself while he was binding and practicing, you know, those bondage things. So if you're curious or you want to see kind of like what his fantasies look like to him, then you could do that. He often like dressed himself up in lingerie and um, wore, you know, wore uh, masks to look more effeminate. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see kind of when he's on his own, how he released himself, if that makes sense. Um, So by age 15, he was no longer satisfied with simply peeping at people through their windows. He wanted more of a thrill than peeping could offer him. He needed to ramp up the intensity and excitement of his secret nighttime activities. So he decided to begin breaking into nearby homes of different girls he found to be attractive. So he would quietly sneak inside go through all of their feminine items, taking panties or significant pieces of clothing that he felt wouldn't be noticed or missed um, by the owner. And that also, that type of behavior and conduct also reminds me um, back to the Canadian Air Force pilot who did the same thing. I totally forgot his name and blank. So if you guys remember, put that in the chat. Uh, I think it's Russell maybe Russell Wilson, unless that's a football player. And I'm crazy. Um, I think his first name is Russell as a true camp person. I'm ashamed of myself. So you don't have to be ashamed for me. Um, But he did the same thing. So he would also go into people's houses and raid their lingerie drawers and take all of these um, different pieces of clothing, but he didn't care if they noticed he thought he got a thrill by them noticing it was gone. And um, he would take pictures of himself and it's so such an odd thing to see um, him, you know, being this very serious Air Force captain and then wearing, you know, like a lingerie set again. No king shaming. It's just a weird juxtaposition. Yes. Russell Williams. There you go. <laughs> Russell Wilson. I think that is a basketball player. Oh, You guys, I'm learning. OK, so. Then at 17, he starts chasing more thrills, as we're talking like he's going through this period of wanting to increase and heighten his thrill seeking. So he started driving like at really high rates of speed during weather conditions that were really dangerous. And he took curves much faster than he should have. And he ended up crashing one of his vehicles into a ditch and broke the windshield with his head during the impact. Now, that's the second serious head injury that Dennis had that occurred and his 17 years of life. So remember, we have one kind of at the initiation of his life, which is around um, six to eight months, where he's dropped on his head pretty severely by his mom, I'm sure not intentional. And then, of course, this serious head injury that happens when he's 17. To me, that's a little bit, I don't think he intended to have a, a head injury, but his actions that he was taking didn't exactly prevent it. So I would say that was more on purpose. Now, by all accounts, according to Dennis and everybody who, you know, knew him and was around him during that time, his life was great. He had graduated from high school, he got a new car, and he was really proud of that car. It was a 1958 Ford. And for the first time, he began having actual relationships with women. Now, this was new and exciting for him because he had never actually taken that step to engage and initiate in a relationship with a woman, but he also decided to kind of pursue higher education, so he ended up going to Wichita Wichita State University, but again, he dropped out. He was a really poor student, like he was not a great student at all. Um, He then decided to enroll in Kansas Wesleyan, which is a college in Salina, Kansas, However, just like at Wichita State, his time there was really brief because he failed multiple classes and dropped out again. He was really only interested in, like, certain things that, like, certain classes. So for him, I think criminal justice, et cetera, it, it, you know, history and math ex- were not his jam. Although he did fancy himself a poet. I'm going to be sharing some of those, and they're pretty terrible. Now, he ends up enlisting in the Air Force in 1966, and he comes over to my neck of the woods in Texas and starts going to um, basic training at Lackland Air Force Base. Now, he would serve in Okinawa, Japan, and he ended up losing his virginity overseas to a sex worker at 22 years old. Now, he, he had his sexual fantasies, and they were still continuing to just fully consist of acts of bondage and control upon women. And he, when he couldn't perform these acts on the sex workers he had encounters with, he would instead cross-dress and wear makeup to fulfill his own fantasy. So again, if you are interested, um, just from, a you know, curiosity, no shame, et cetera, um, you'll see some of those pictures in, on Google if you search for BTK case file photos, kind of, of how he dresses himself to mimic a woman and then binds himself. I mean, kudos to him because on that part, because some of those bond, you know, like bindings look really crazy. I don't know how he got out of them, to be honest, but um, that's not really my focus on (laughs) learning knots and stuff. So, you know, maybe there's an easy way for him to have gotten out of it. So he ends up getting discharged from the Air Force in August of 1970, and he ended up moving back home to Wichita, and he gets a job in a supermarket and began dating a woman named Paula Deets. Now, after a brief courtship, Dennis and Paula were married on May 22nd, 1971. So he decides to pursue a higher education again and enrolls himself in Butler County Community College. Now, he remained a loner he was kind of he calls himself like a lone wolf and he still thought at the time that his life was going well and and by all accounts it was he hadn't done anything um criminal minus the peeping tom things but a lot of people would like you know maybe push that to the side saying like oh it's just curious adolescence you know who knows but um he thought his life was going great. He had a beautiful wife that he loved. He looked forward to starting a life with her. They moved into a first their first home together. And they had a lot of plans for their future. And they were really excited to embark on those as a couple together. But I truly wonder, after knowing what I know about him now, if he truly was excited. And if he truly did love Paula. I understand, you know, being able to compartmentalize these you know feelings and stuff, but knowing what I know, and if you've never watched his confession on YouTube, you absolutely should. If you're into true your crime, you're into things like that, you absolutely should because it is so profound to me how he's describing these absolutely horrendous details, like every like every step of the way, with a straight face, mon like monotonous tone in his voice. So I don't when I see things like that, it's hard for me to think that he had an opportunity um, to really feel any feelings of love towards anybody. Um, I think, I think he thought that he was able to do that. And so he pretended, but I don't think he ever actually felt anything for anybody. So during his marriage or, you know, that earlier time, he he still couldn't stop his constant thoughts and fantasies of tying up women and rendering them helpless to his complete and utter control over them. And he began reading a lot of true crime novels again and even bought himself a mini hit kit. Now, this kit was made up of ropes, tape cords, and lots of things of that nature. Obviously, things used to bind people. He really wanted to try out some light bondage with Paula, but he did it with her once and Paula said she didn't like it. So he never tried it on her again. So this is another instance. We've mentioned it earlier, Hannah and um, Maddie Madeline. Sorry, I keep calling you Maddie because I have a friend named Madeline who goes by Maddie. Apologies. Um, We're talking about it in the chat earlier about how, you know, there's obviously going to be a difference between somebody who's murdering somebody and getting a thrill out of that versus somebody who's just truly into, um, bondage. So I think the fact that, the fact that Paula wasn't a willing participant after she agreed, you know, like, yeah, but then decided she didn't like it for him. He was like, okay, well, I can't safely do this with a partner. Now I'm going to have to go out and do whatever I want to do. Well, he ends up graduating from Butler community college in, um, 1972 and he gets a degree in electronics, like whatever that means in 1972. um, And he ends up going to work for Cessna, but he was let go after nine months because the economy was poop at the time. Now, this layoff was really detrimental. He even talks about this. His layoff was really detrimental to him, and it became a huge turning point in his life. He became really angry and decided he needed to do something he loved more than almost anything else, which was breaking and entering into a home. This break-in would be the first of many, many more to come. Again, this is just a thrill-seeking type of, you know, opportunity for him, which is why we often see him, you know, starting off with burglaries and breaking and entering, etc. So he went to the Twin Lakes Mall after his layoff. And there was an attractive bank teller there who caught his attention and he actually began stalking her and he even tried to abduct her, but he failed at that. It was at this point that he decided abducting a woman out in the open was just not a safe option for him. He needed to take a victim in the house. So he starts to ruminate on how he can um, do that and he thinks that by enrolling himself again, In Wichita State University, he might have access to people and he can also, you know, continue his studies, but he also might have access to women that he could possibly begin stalking because that kind of became became his M.O. is that he would stalk and get to know a family. Um, So in 1974, he began stalking the neighborhood of what were soon to be his very first victims. He had an overwhelming urge to hang someone. And later, he would name this feeling of needing to kill Factor X. And this is um, what he says in his conversations with Catherine Ramslin. He blames a lot of his actions on Factor X. And he's able to say, Dennis, the guy, would never do this. But Factor X, who lives in Dennis, made me do this. And I think, again, BS, cop out. I think it's just he understands kind of how society looks at him now and how society would look at him. So being able to say, oh, factor X did it is his way of trying to, you know, push blame to the side. So with his first project, he called it project little Mex, as in Mexican. Um, And I just want to be cautionary with you guys. Now I don't get into a lot of, Um, super details. I think everybody kind of, if you're, you know, been in true crime for a while, you know, um, a lot of people can be gratuitous with the information that they share. So we are going to be talking about children being victims of crimes um, in this episode. So just keep that in mind. And if it's something that's triggering for you and you need to step away, totally understand. Um, And I'll try to be as, you know, cautionary as possible with the information. So, On January 15th, 1974, he ends up driving to a parking lot. He crossed the street and walked to his first victim's house. He arrived at the Otero residence at 8.20 a.m. The home was less than 10 miles from his own home. And after seeing some of the members of the household leave, Dennis promptly cut the phone lines and snuck into the home through the back door. Now, upon entering the house, Dennis pulled out his pistol and told 38-year-old Joseph Otero Sr., who's the father, um, he's going to be referred to as Mr. Otero because he is a senior. And we also will be mentioning the junior at some point. So he told him, as he's pointing his gun at him, he's saying, hey, I'm just a hungry man who's wanted, and I'm here to steal your car And all I need you to do is lay the face down on the floor in the living room and I'll go about my business. Now, the family dog at the time was causing quite a ruckus, barking, obviously, because Dennis was a stranger in the home. So he's doing what a dog does. So he asked Mr. Otero if he could let the dog out. And Mr. Otero agreed. And one of his children sent the dog outside. Then Dennis led the four family members back to a bedroom where he proceeded to tie each one of the family members hands and feet up. They started complaining about being tied up. So Dennis loosened some of the bonds and he would later say, he would see this, op- like doing this as an act of like humanity. And you like, Oh, look at what a good guy I was. Like they told me that their, you know, bindings were too tight. So I went ahead and, you know, loosen them up. Like I'm such a good guy. I'm like, Completely looking over the fact that he's about to commit a crime and murder them. So (sighs) Mr. Otero was actually home when he wasn't supposed to be because he had cracked a rib during a recent car accident. And this kind of threw Dennis off because he thought he would just be in the house with um, the women And he felt like, okay, I could take them on. But since Joseph was there, he kind of was like, okay, I got to get rid of him first. But again, he points back to look at what a great guy I am. So since he had cracked this rib, he decides to put a pillow down for his head and put a jacket underneath him to make him more comfortable. Now, the family obviously terrified and scared about what's going on. They tell Dennis, listen, you can have the car, take whatever money you want. They didn't really have any money to offer, but they were willing to give him you know anything he wanted so that he wouldn't hurt them and Then Dennis gets this idea in his mind and comes to a realization that this family can easily identify him because he wasn't wearing a mask he just- dis- he decided to in his words put him put him down, I guess, or strangle them, and again, you guys. If you don't, if you haven't seen, rather, the YouTube video of his confession, you absolutely should. It's ridiculous. So he begins first with Mr. Otero by placing a plastic bag over his head and then tying some cords around his neck and tightening them. Now, Dennis hadn't strangled anyone before and didn't realize how difficult it was to kill someone that way. And at this point in time, Miss Julie Otero, who is the mom, she was 34 at the time, She was tied up on the bed, as was their 11-year-old daughter, Josephine. Their son, 9-year-old Junior, was tied up on the floor. So after placing the bag on Mr. Otero's head, Dennis then moves on to Mrs. Otero. But he did not realize that Mr. Otero wasn't dead yet. He thought, okay, clearly going to be done with this bag but he still wasn't. So Mr. Otero ends up tearing a hole in the bag and the rest of the family starts panicking because they're hearing his panicked breaths and gasping for air. So Dennis starts working faster. He ends up putting a cloth or a shirt over Mr. Otero's head and then another bag and then another bag and then tied it down. So he didn't stand there and watch Mr. Otero die because he had three other family members to worry about, but he figured he had done enough at that time to basically you know, ensure that Joseph Otero Sr. would die. Now, he ends up strangling Mrs. Otero next, and then he moves on to Josephine. Now, he thought they were dead, but they had actually just passed out. Then Dennis puts a bag on Junior's head as Mrs. Otero comes to. He then re-strangles Mrs. Otero with a cork and a rope like a garrot, and finally ends up killing her. Now, before Dennis kills Mrs killed mrs otero she had asked him to save her son so dennis ends up taking the bag off junior's head now after mrs otero was really dead dennis took junior into a different bedroom and killed him the same way that he killed mr otero which was with a few bags and a shirt or a cloth step into the world of power I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Think of how, like, you know, share your thoughts with me so far in the chat, you guys. But think of how sadistic you have to be to I mean you're already like you know killing people but you let this mother I mean I I don't know how you guys feel about that like I, I get pissed off every time obviously going through these crimes especially with the Otero family because he was so depraved in it but like you let this woman die thinking her child's going to be saved and I don't know if that's like a a good thing or a bad thing, given the circumstances, like maybe I would rather think that that my kid lived, you know, versus meeting the same fate as me. Um, I don't know. I, I, It's hard to kind of go back and think about that. It's. I don't know. It's it, obviously this this case is upsetting to a lot of people, but you, if, when you try to like really drill down into the why of things, it's you're never going to get a good answer, you know. So um, after Junior died, Dennis then realized that Josephine was awake, so he took her down to the basement and had this short conversation with her before he decided that she was going to be the one that he um, could complete his fantasy with of hanging her. Now, Josephine ends up asking Dennis what's going to happen to her, and Dennis ends up telling her that she's going to go to heaven to be with the rest of her family. So after Josephine dies, Dennis had some sexual fantasies and ended up um, completing those fantasies in the basement. Now, at some point, he had decided to kind of disrobe her, but did leave her clothes, like left her sweatshirt on and her socks on. So it was really um, strange as to why he did that. Um, During his confession, he said that he had trouble killing Josephine because her hair kept getting in the way, and she had really, really long hair. Um, There's photos of the Otero family out there um, that you can see, and Josephine definitely does have—she has that hair that kind of reaches your butt kind of situation. So, yeah, it's it's really sad. So after the killings, Dennis ends up getting the keys to the car. He cleans up the house. He took a radio— and Mr. Otero's watch, and he made sure everything was packed up, and he left through the front door. He then drove to Dylan's, which was a local, or still is a local grocery store in the area, and he ends up leaving the Otero car there, and he walks back to his own personal car. Now, during his walk, he realized, like, oh, shit, I left my knife there. So he ends up having to drive back to the Otero house. He parks in their garage, finds the knife, and then drives to the woods to burn his um project notes, sketches, and the rope that he used. Now, um, another part of the Otero family story and another tragic part of this is that they had three other children who were at school at the time. Um, So they ended up coming home from school to a really silent home and had the traumatizing experience of discovering the remains of their four beloved family members. Now, during his confession, Dennis admitted to not knowing that Mr. Otero would be at the home. He had actually targeted Miss Otero and Josephine because of their Hispanic ethnicity. And he said that he had a special affection for Mexican women. like Whatever that means. Now, it would only be a few months before he would strike again for his project called Project Lights Out. Now, on April 4th, 1974, he parked at the Wichita State University campus and walked to his next victim's house. He ended up breaking through the back door of 21-year-old Catherine Bright's home. He walked through the house to figure out the best place to wait for the woman to arrive home, but as he was trying to find a place to hide, Catherine and her 19-year-old brother Kevin walked through the door. Now, Dennis, again, for the second time, was not expecting another man to be in the house. Um, he left his hiding place and approached the two siblings. He again used the same story saying he was a wanted man out of California and he needed a car. He then proceeded to force Kevin to tie Catherine to a chair. Now, after tying Kevin to the bedpost, Dennis took Catherine to another room and he returned to the room where Kevin was kept and a fight ensued. Now, somehow during this brief time, Dennis was gone. Um, Kevin's garrote broke. So he was, you know, trying to strangle Kevin with this makeshift garrote and it ended up breaking. And so he was able to jump up and start running, but Dennis ends up shooting him in the head and he thought that Kevin was dead. So he ends up going back to Catherine's room. He starts to strangle her, but the bonds weren't secure on her either. And they fought for a while and Dennis got the best of her in his words. And she eventually went down. He heard some movement in Kevin's room, so he ends up going back there, and he tries to strangle Kevin, but Kevin grabbed Dennis's other handgun from his shoulder holster, and at this point, more fighting ensued, and Dennis was finally able to shoot Kevin again. Now, with Kevin down for good that time, according to Dennis, um, he went back to check on Catherine, and this woman is a fighter, and the strangling just wasn't working, so Dennis ended up stabbing her 11 times in the torso. And while stabbing her, Dennis remembers that he loses control and he said the scene was just a total mess. But again, remember, he's a methodical killer. So everything for him is stacked up in a plan. He creates these project notes of how things are going to work when he gets there. And this is the second time he's been surprised by an outcome. So for him, having these plans laid out and then having kind of them pushed to the side because of, you know, Kevin, he's obviously going to be very angry and upset that this has happened. So he's reacting in that way. And that's why he says he lost control because the entire project basically went to shit. He ends up hearing the first door open or the front door open. And he's like, okay, I've been caught. That's it. It's the police because they've heard all this commotion and they've heard the gunshots. So obviously people, you know, the police are coming to arrest me. But no, it's actually Kevin He steps outside and he sees Kevin running down the street and he knew that he had to get out of there fast. So he tries to, I mean, I don't know why he wastes, but whatever. So he ends up cleaning up what he could and he flees the premises. He jumped in the car, but he couldn't get the vehicle to start. So he just took off running and he ran back to the campus, which is about a 20 minute walk where his car was parked. He cleans himself up, puts his clothes in a plastic bag, and then he took them to his parents' house where he stored them in the garage. He would later return and burn the clothes, and he threw the gun away in a nearby creek. So Catherine ends up passing away from her injuries at a hospital a few hours later. And while speaking to the police, Kevin described the killer as an average-sized guy with a bushy mustache, mustache and psychotic eyes. Dennis does not recall if he brought a kill kit that he um, did, like he did with the Oteros, but he believes he did not bring a kill kit because if he had, then Kevin would have died. And again, during his confession, he kind of gets a little bit braggadocious, like, oh, yeah, I got the best of her. And like, oh, if only I had this, he definitely would have been dead. So again, no remorse whatsoever. And he's just like, it's disturbing. So in 74, an article comes out stating that three men knew the details of the Otero family murders and Dennis being the narcissist that he is, which, again, I'll go into my craziness later about this whole situation. So he didn't like this and he didn't want someone else getting credit for his actions. So he wrote and hid a letter that detailed the murders of the Otero family inside a book in the Wichita Public Library. He then called a columnist at the Wichita Eagle and told him to go look in the library book called Applied Engineering Mechanics. And the letter read, Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. He then describes the Otero crime scene with the body positions and conditions. I'm sorry this happened to the society. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion Hang up. where this monster, and he writes terribly. So I'm reading it verbatim and it's very hard where this monster enter my brain. I will never know, but it here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help that you have killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. I can't stop it, so the monster goes on and hurt me as well as society. Society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at time by daydreams of some victims being tortured and being mine. It's a big, complicated game, my friend, of the monster play, putting victims' number down, uh, following them, checking up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting. The pressure is great, and sometimes he run the game to his liking. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. So again, he's starting this whole like First of all, he's he, he his grammar is so terrible. It's literally in everything he writes. Even I I don't understand it. But, you know, as he he tries to play himself off as being like this cunning, smart dude and I'm like, "Dude, you can't even write a complete sentence." So no. That's neither here nor there. So He possibly gets the worst job for somebody like him in 1974. He ends up working for ADT Security Services, and he'd work there until 1988. Now, I'm sure you're cringing because same. So he found out that he was going to be a father. Um, Dennis and Paula's son, Brian, ends up being born in July of 1975. And he would just spend the next few years stalking and attempting other projects, but none were successful until March of 77. Now he travels a little over seven miles from his home to a Dylan's parking lot across the street from his next intended victim. Dennis had watched this resident for quite some time and planned to kill the target. He had attached a project to this person, and this one was entitled Project Green or Greenwood. He ends up going to knock on the door, and there is um, no response. So he was all keyed up. He was like ready to go. He was amped and he knew the layout of the neighborhood well. So he just was like, okay, well, nobody knocked on that door. I'm going to go try another one. So he and asked him if he could ID some pictures. So after talking to the boy, he tried knocking on a few other doors, but no one answered. So he decides to go follow the boy to the house that he lives in. And he knocks on the door and tells the person, you know, that, He's a private detective, and he showed a picture that he had shown the boy and then forced himself in at that time. So he ends up walking in, pulling out his pistol, and the person who opened the door was 24-year-old Shirley Vianne. And he told her he had a problem with sexual fantasies, and he needed to tie her up. And he also told her that he may need to tie the kids up. She was nervous, and she smoked a cigarette. Now, I will say, Shirley Vianne is a badass dude. Like I know, I'm sorry she's bit, she's going to be murdered by Dennis, but I was just like, "Yes, honey. Like that's how I would go out. I would be fighting tooth and nail." So, he ends up tying up the kids in her bedroom and they start crying, and Dennis decided that having the kids in her room wouldn't work, so he took them to the bathroom. He gave the kids some toys and blankets to make them comfortable and then tried to shut the door. He then went back to her bedroom and they um They both shoved the bed up against the bathroom door, and Dennis, again, ties her up. She threw up, and then Dennis got her a glass of water. He then finished tying her up again, and he basically, like, tied her up from top to bottom, all the way up to her neck, and then he used the um, rope to strangle her to death. Now, he... The kids were screaming, they were banging on the door, so he just ends up packing up the kill cut, grabbing some of Shirley's items, like I think her underwear, and he ends up going back to his car in the Dillon's parking lot, but the kids were able eventually to free themselves and call the police. He then writes a really terribly atrocious poem called um, Goldilocks, which is about Shirley, and so... He says, Shirley Lux, Shirley Lux, wilt thou be mine? Thou shalt not scream, not yet feed the line, but lay on a cushion and think of me in death and how it is going to be. Again, terrible. So he ends up stalking again, moving forward to 25-year-old Nancy Fox. He paid close attention to her residence after spotting Nancy. He did a little homework on her. And he ends up going through her mailbox to find out what her name is and found out where she worked, which was at Hell'sburg's. So he decided to stop at the Diamond Store and size her up. And so for him, Nancy became Project Fox, Foxtail, or Fox Hunt. So on December 8th, 1977, he ends up parking his car two or three blocks away from Fox's house. Her house was less than 10 miles from his own. So again, he kept everything in this really close Radius to his own home, which is stupid. So he ends up knocking on the door to make sure no one was home and he walks around the back of the house. He cuts the phone lines, breaks in, and waited in her kitchen for her to arrive. Now, when Nancy Fox comes home, he tells her a new story and says, Hey, I have a sexual problem and I need to tie you up and have sex with you. So Nancy was obviously upset and so he decided to talk to her for a while. Nancy smoked a cigarette. Dennis went through her purse. And after finishing the cigarette, Nancy said, let's get this over with so I can go call the police. Nancy went to the bathroom and Dennis told her to make sure she came out of the bathroom fully undressed. When she came out of the bathroom, Dennis handcuffed her. He then laid her on the bed, tied her feet up and got on top of her because he was undressed as well. Uh, He reached over to grab a belt and then strangled her with it. Now he takes the belt off and ties pantyhose around her neck, takes off the handcuffs and ties her hands up with pantyhose. Um, And then he completes an act and he ends up dressing himself and rummaging through her items. He ends up taking her driver's license and some lingerie and the driver's license comes back to play later on. So keep that in mind. Um, So he cleans up the house again, makes sure all of his personal items were picked up and he left. The next day, he calls the police from a payphone to give them Fox's name and address so they could discover his handiwork. Um, He ends up mailing his poem about Shirley to the Wichita Eagle in 1978. And he sent a package to a television station in Wichita. And the package contained a letter claiming that the writer had murdered the Otero family, Shirley Vianne, Nancy Fox, and Catherine Bright. In the letter, Dennis suggested names for himself. One of the nicknames was BTK. The package also included a poem about Nancy. The poem read, "'Oh, death to Nancy, what is this that I can see? Cold icy hands taking hold of me. For death has come, you all can see. Hell has opened its gates to trick me.' Oh, death. Oh, death. Can't you spare me over for another year? I'll stuff your jaws till you can't talk. I'll bind your legs till you can't walk. I'll tie your hands till you can't make a stand. And finally, I'll close your eyes so you can't see. I'll bring sexual death unto you for me. Eye roll. He's he's such a terrible writer, you guys. I mean, ugh. So... The next person that enters Dennis's life on June 13th, 1978 is his daughter, Carrie Lynn. Now, if you have been into um, true crime for a while, you know that Carrie goes by Carrie Rossa now, and she actually wrote a book um, about her experience growing up and then finding out that her father was BTK. So I highly recommend that book because it is a great read. So in 1979, he attempts Project Pinecone. This was another attempt to bind, torture, and kill a 24-year-old woman he had noticed in the neighborhood. The woman was not around when he broke into her house, so he cut the phone lines and burglarized her home. Later, he looked up her address um, in the phone book and learned that the residence was named Anna. So on June 15, Anna received a poorly written poem in the mail that said, Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Twas perfect plan of deviant pleasure so bold on that spring night. My inner feeling hot with propension of the new awakening season. Worn, wet with inner fear and rapture. My pleasure of entanglement like new vines. So tight. Oh, A, why didn't you appear? I literally cannot finish this poem. It's so stupid. So, He ends up finding out that Anna was actually not the woman he had seen in the neighborhood. Anna was the 63-year-old, was a woman's 63-year-old grandmother. So he wrote the poem to the wrong person. But again, neither here nor there. So he ends up graduating from Wichita State University in 79 with a bachelor's in administration of justice. So until his next murder, he ends up keeping busy with the kids, work, and he's just stalking more potential victims. So he ends up taking a six-year break from killing, and in 1985, he ends up leaving his son at a Boy Scout camp. He parks his car in a bowling alley parking lot on Woodlawn and 21st, and changed into different clothes. He went into the bowling alley and called a taxi, and he took his kit with him in a bowling. Um, sorry, he took his kit with him in a bowling bag. So, he was planning to kill his 53-year-old neighbor, Marnie Hedge, for Project Cookie or DeFlower. Marnie lived down the street from Dennis, six houses down on the same side of the street, to be precise. This is the closest he's been to his home. Um, So, he chose her as a victim because he was able to watch her come and go pretty easily. So. He swished some beer around in his mouth so the taxi driver would think he was a little drunk and he asked the taxi driver to let him out since he was just a little ways away from Hedges' house so he could walk and get some fresh air. He then walks um, to her house and he got to her house, sees there's a car in the driveway and he thought, wow, she's not supposed to be home. So he snuck into her house, but she wasn't inside and he heard the front door rattling. So he quickly you know, crept back to the bedroom and hid. And she came in with a male visitor and her visitor and her talked for about an hour. And then he finally left. So Deniz was continuing to hide the entire time all the way until the wee hours of the morning, at which point he snuck into her bedroom while she was sleeping. He quickly flicked on her bathroom lights and jumped into her bed, But she was screaming so much that he felt he needed to quickly strangle her. And since Dennis was in one of his sexual fantasies after strangling her, he stripped and tied her up. He put her on a blanket, went through her purse and some personal items in her house, and then worked on figuring out a way to get her body out of the house. He eventually moves her to the trunk of her car and drove her to Christ Lutheran Church, which is a church he was a member of. He said that moving a dead body was like moving a concrete box. And he took some Polaroid pictures of her in different forms of bondage. And he ended up keeping the pictures and even stored some of the photos in his church's basement. He then took her body back to the car and drove around trying to find the best place to hide her body. He eventually settles on a ditch in a low place on the north side of the road and hit her there by placing some brush over her remains. He later realized he'd forgotten the cord around her neck and had to return to remove it. He threw the rest of her belongings out the window as he drove on rural roads, and she was discovered eight days later. So he finds his ninth victim, 28-year-old Vicki Weggerly, and he's deciding that, hey, I'm going to kill her on September 16th, 1986, he disguises himself as a telephone repairman in order to gain her trust and be invited into the home. Um, he gets in, changes out of his hit clothes, and he decides to. Um, let's see. He. Oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So, he's on his way there. He ends up getting into his hit clothes, and he could hear um, a piano playing. So he decided that killing this victim became known as Project Piano. So he ends up getting into the house and he pretends to look over her phone lines. He's using a fake instrument to like look into it. And when Vicky glanced away, trusting that Dennis was busy at work and completely oblivious to the extreme situation she was actually in, he swiftly pulls out his pistol, points it at her and instructs her to head to the bedroom with him. He told her he was going to have to tie her up, and she was extremely emotional and terrified for her life. She fought as hard as she could and was able to scratch up his nose and face. Dennis used materials Vicki had in her bedroom to tie her up, and he tied her hands, but she managed to break through the material and started fighting again. But he ends up being able to get a stocking around her neck and started strangling her. Now, he thought that she was dead, so he started rearranging her clothes and took some photos. Then she suddenly wakes up and mentions that her husband would be coming home soon. So Dennis hurriedly, you know, like runs out, grabs everything he can and leaves. Now, when Vicki's husband, Bill, arrives at the home, he finds his injured wife in their bedroom. He immediately calls 911 because the couple and the couple's two-year-old son was home at the time, but he was not injured. So paramedics arrive at the home, but they're too late. They attempted to revive Vicki but she died on the way to the hospital as a result from Dennis's strangulation and the sad part about this is that Vicky's husband Bill was suspected of the murder but unbeknownst to Dennis people were able to people police were able to obtain a DNA sample from under Vicky's fingernails so he switches jobs in 1989 and becomes a census worker but he ends up being let go from that because he was just really difficult to work with he ended up staying unemployed Um, which left him with plenty of time on his hands to find new victims. So in 1991, he looks for his next project, which is Project Dogside. Um, He has some reservations about going into this victim's home because he had cased the place beforehand and couldn't figure out how to break in. Um, He decided, you know what, I'm just going to take a concrete concrete block to the door or to the sliding glass window and um, go inside the house. So Dolores Davis, who's 62, came out of her bedroom because she thought someone may have driven their car into her house. Dennis gave her his same old sexual fantasy spiel and handcuffs her. Um, He talked to her so she would calm down because obviously she was upset. And he checked out, you know, to see what was going on with the car situation. He pretended to eat some food and acted like, okay, thanks for letting me tie you up for a little bit. I'm going to go now. Then he went back to her, takes her handcuffs off, and then ties her up again and starts looking and rummaging through her things. He finds a few souvenirs, but then he decides that ultimately he's going to strangle her with pantyhose. He wraps her in a blanket, puts her in the trunk of her own car, and then dumps her body in some bushes. He then drives to his church, hides all the evidence he collected under the church's shed, And he realized that he had misplaced one of his guns at some point during the attack. So he ends up going back to her house and he ends up finding the gun near the patio door. So he's really relieved. But then he's like, well, while I'm here, I'm just going to keep stealing stuff. So he takes a jewelry box camera and a porcelain mask. And you'll see that mask in some of those photos he ends up taking. Um, So he ends up going back to his car from where he had parked it. He goes back to the church, changes his clothes. And during this whole time, Dennis had a barn in mind that he intended to take Dolores to so that he could take pictures of her body without risk of being interrupted. He returned to her body, put the body in his car and headed toward the barn. But then it began to snow and he couldn't figure out where the barn was. So he found a bridge and dumped her body underneath it. And then he went to a rest stop and changed his clothes. So he decides, you know what? I'm done with Dolores. I Or I'm not done with Dolores. So he goes back gets her body again so that he can put the porcelain mask on her face, and he takes a few pictures, and then he finally goes back to pick up his son, who he left at a Boy Scout camp. Um, He does the same thing he did with the previous victim, Marnie, and throws out all of her items in the windows, and she wasn't discovered until 13 days later. So he's getting a little bit sloppy. I don't know if you guys are noticing this, but he is getting a little bit sloppy with what he's doing. So He becomes a dog catcher in 1991 and a compliance officer, and everybody hates him because he is such a douchebag to everybody and starts being able to find new projects to, you know, hunt, if you will. But then he experiences a tragedy in 1996. His father passes away and he becomes his mother's primary caretaker. Um... He still was reading true crime novels and would devour every article he could find about other serial killers getting caught, like Gary Ridgway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer, David Parker Ray, an effed up mother effer, who's a toy box killer, and many others. And he began to get really nervous at this point that he was going to be caught. But his narcissism is what leads to his downfall. So in 2004, he ends up reading a Wichita Eagle article that talked about how you know, how few people really remembered the BTK cases. And for Dennis, that's unacceptable because he should be in the forefront of everybody's mind because of how much he terrorized Wichita. And he ends up finding out that there's a book being written by a local author. And Dennis, again, was scared of getting caught, but his need to be recognized outweighed his anxiety over the matter, and he felt compelled to stir the pot. So in 2004, he sends a letter to the Wichita Eagle, where he claimed that BTK is the one who murdered Vicki Weggerly. He enclosed photographs in her driver's license. And in May, he mailed a fake letter. I'm sorry. He mailed a letter, fake IDs, and a word puzzle to a television station. And in 2004, he tapes, or June 2004, he ends up taping a package to a stop sign. In that package, there are details and sketches about the Otero family murders, The next month, he puts another package in the return slot of a Wichita library, and in there, it states that uh, BTK killed a 19-year-old man in Argonia, Kansas, but that was actually untrue. The man had actually completed suicide. Now, Dennis's incessant need to be noticed and recognized was really causing him to take risks he'd never taken in the past, and his ego was getting the best of him. He ends up putting an envelope in the UPS box, and it contained graphic bondage images, a poem, and a false autobiography about BTK. And he ends up leaving a package in Murdoch Park in December, and that package contained Nancy Fox's driver's license and a bonded doll with a plastic bag over its head. And he then continues this spree of, like, putting packages all around Kansas. Um, So in 2005, he uses a cereal box and he chose a special K for the K portion of his name, BTK. Um, and he puts it in a truck bed at Home Depot, but the owner ends up just throwing it away and doesn't even think about it. So police were able to view video footage from the parking lot, and they saw a man drop off the cereal box, then get into a black Jeep Cherokee. And they ended up finding the box later. It contained a doll resembling Josefino Otero, as well as more of the fake autobiography and some jewelry. So he starts sending postcards to a local television station and left yet another cereal box, which was post toasties for tea in a rural location. The box included another doll that was meant to symbolize Josephine Otero's murder. Um, Now, this is where he messed up. Okay, and this is the most ridiculous thing. And yes, we're going over time. So FYI. Um, So he ends up writing a letter to police and saying hey, is it possible that I could be traced back through a floppy disk? Now, don't lie to me. And he has this weird thing in his mind that the police are going to be like, oh, Dennis, or, oh, BTK, we would never lie to you. And so they basically say, yeah, no, you, no way we can find you through a floppy disk. Go ahead and send it on over. So rather than double-checking that information information, Dennis just took the police department's word for it and sent the package to a Fox TV affiliate station in Wichita in 2005. Now, the package included a floppy disk, a gold necklace with the medallion, and a copy of the cover of the Rules of Prey novel. Now, I'm telling you, not the smartest cookie in the box. So they received the package and they were able to easily find the data information on the floppy disk. And so it showed that the disk had been created at Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas. And the last modifier was someone named Dennis. So the police look up members of the church and what do you know? A man named Dennis Rader just happened to be the president of the church council. So they went to speak with the pastor of the church and he said that Dennis did indeed have access to their computer. Now, the police drive by Dennis Rader's home, and they end up seeing a Jeep Cherokee that's black parked in the driveway. And it's the same one from the Home Depot footage. Now, at this point, they had a good amount of circumstantial evidence against Dennis Rader, but that's often not enough to convict a murderer, so they took another route in hopes of capturing him. They obtained a warrant to test DNA from Dennis's daughter's pap smear. Now, in Carrie Rawson's book, she says she had no idea this is what happened. um, And she's not sure that she would have consented to it. So the results come back and showed that the DNA from Vicki Weggerly's fingernails had a strong familial match to the DNA from the pap smear. And this was a huge win for the police. And they were more than ready to move forward with the process of apprehending and prosecuting Dennis. So on February 25th, 2005, they were able to arrest the infamous BTK serial killer. They pulled Dennis over close to his home at 12.15 p.m. as he was on his lunch break, and at the station, police interviewed Dennis for nearly 30 hours over the course of two days. Now, police said that Dennis was really friendly with them. Like he was one of the guys. And so he was just spouting off information about his crimes. Like, yep, I did this. And here's how I did that. Because he, in his mind, he thought he was talking to like his colleagues. He wanted to be, you know, in law enforcement and he couldn't really go through the police route. So that's why he chose the code and compliance officer Um that he felt like that gave him the power he needed. So Police end up doing a search of Raiders' belongings and they find seven three ring binders and 25 hanging folders that contained writings, drawings, newspaper clippings, photos, and more. On February 28, 2005, he's officially charged with 10 counts of first degree murder. On March 1st, his bond was set at $10 million and he was appointed a public defender after he told his family he did not want to use the attorney they were paying for. On April 19th, he waives his preliminary hearing, and on May 3rd, Dennis entered 10 not guilty pleas at his arraignment, and his trial was set for June 27th. But you're probably thinking, Lainey, you just said he confessed. He's all over YouTube confessing. But according to Carrie, she says when his trial was due to begin, he decided that the burden placed on his family or that was going to be placed on his family and his children was just not fair eye roll. I doubt that that's what he was thinking, but he ends up changing his plea to guilty on all ten counts, and the judge went through each plea. and Dennis details each murder in great length for the judge and all of the court spectators. On July twenty six two thousand five, Dennis's wife Paula filed for divorce, and Carrie touches a little bit on her mom in the book too about like how could she not know? How could this not happen? But As much as Dennis likes to say like, oh, we had such a happy life. We had a great, you know, everything. My children were so happy. Carrie's book kind of says the antithesis of that. Like, yes, they had a happy home. But dad was really uh, he like once choked my brother during an argument and he would he was really domineering and dominant, you know, so he was expressing those areas and need for control even in his home. But Dennis presents it like, I was a great father. I was blah, blah, blah. And Carrie presents the real side of it, I think, um, from her perspective. On August 18th, he's sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences. And he, was eligible, he will be eligible for parole in 175 years. Um, now, at the time of his crimes, the state of Kansas did not have the death penalty. So he spends his days in solitary confinement at the El Dorado Correctional Facility. His mom passed away in the fall of 2007, and Dennis later admitted that he would have left a third cereal box, Raisin Bran, for B on March 17th with a bomb and a doll resembling Shirley, but he was captured before he could execute his plan. So that's the story of BTK Dennis Rader. If you guys have any thoughts you want to share, feel free to. I know this is a really crazy case. It's little long, but that's kind of what we expected. Um, I do highly recommend reading Carrie's book. It is a really great read. I have a copy of it here in my house. Um, And it is, I listened to the um, audiobook version of it because it's, it's just, oh man, it's really intense. And it's really sad to see how kind of her life was turned upside down after this and how she was trying to Reconcile who her father was to her and who he really was, and then how she may have missed certain things and kind of finds a you know finds some time blaming herself but really shouldn't. Um, this the book is called A Serial Killer's Daughter My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. Um, it's it's a really really great read. So if you guys um, are into that, feel free to read it. But, yeah, I I thought it was – when I was younger, I thought it was pretty lame that he was interested in um, making sure nobody took credit for his claims. I was like, dude, you could have totally been like – what's his face? The Zodiac Killer. But you were so, like, narcissistic and wanting to take credit for these horrendous crimes instead of – from his perspective, letting somebody take the fall and say, like, oh, yeah, you know, whoever. um, Letting that happen and living his life, you know, and I, I didn't understand it at the time, but I'm really glad that he let his ego get the best of him and ended up, you know, being caught because a lot of people's lives were likely saved because Dennis Rader is no longer out in the public. So give me some GIFs, drop some GIFs in the chat, cheering that Dennis Rader is locked up and will never see the light of day because he's going to be there for 175 years plus. Um, but yeah, if you guys are interested in more um, serial killer content, I have a lot of research and information there too, so we can definitely hit some more, but BTK was kind of one of my pet cases. It's one that I was really interested in when I was younger. Um, And now that we know who Dennis Rader is and that Catherine Ramsland book that came out with his information, you kind of get to see a little bit of a background into his psyche and it's not great um, at all. So that is our program for today. If you guys have Any comments, questions, concerns, drop them in the chat or press request. But otherwise, I hope that you continue on and follow with our true crime content for the rest of the evening. We are going to have True Crime Rewind discussing the R. Kelly verdict, which is awesome that he got convicted. And he, of course, (laughs) posted something on his Instagram, I think, or Twitter saying that he was wrongfully convicted. And Bill Cosby, I'm sorry, if Bill Cosby is your supporter, saying that... um, You Were Railroaded, I'd pick, like Bailey Sarian says, pick different idols. Um, And then the Crime Movie Club is going to be discussing the Queen of Pop, Britney Spears, and the Netflix documentary. Um, I talked about it a little bit last week, and sometimes on Wednesdays Wednesdays, I go into pop culture too. Um, But they're going to be discussing that Netflix documentary. And their thoughts on it, and like I said, Britney Spears' case does delve into true crime because what's happening to her is a crime. And luckily, we're looking to see an end of the conservatorship happening soon. Her father has been removed or suspended but is on his way to being removed and um, couldn't be happier. She's very happy on Instagram and posting wonderful pictures of herself and Sam. So I'm very happy that she is likely going to get her happy ending that she's so um, so rightly deserves. Okay, friends. So have a good evening. See you in the other rooms. Don't forget to join me next week for True Gram Convos. New slot time is 6 p.m. Central. Um, so if you click on my profile picture, you can follow me and you'll be notified every time I go live. So I hope everyone has a great rest of the evening. Thank you so much for joining me and I will talk to you next time. Bye.